October 26, 1962. It was 1 a.m., and the world was on the brink of annihilation. Alexander Alexeev, the Soviet ambassador to Cuba, was rudely pulled out of his bed and brought before Fidel Castro. The 36-year-old Cuban strongman was in a deeply agitated state. The Soviet Union, hoping to intimidate the United States, had convinced Castro to allow the construction of nuclear missile launch pads in Cuba. Castro was apprehensive, but the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev assured him that Washington wouldn't try to stop them. So he allowed it. But when CIA spy planes discovered what was being built in Cuba, the White House did not sit idle. Instead, President John F. Kennedy ordered a complete naval blockade of the island. Worse, the U.S. military began preparations for a full-scale invasion. Cuba had already defeated the Americans once, but there was no telling if they could do it again. Castro needed help. So after waking the Soviet ambassador, Castro forced him to write a letter to Khrushchev. As Castro dictated the letter, the ambassador looked at him in confusion. Castro couldn't possibly mean what he seemed to be suggesting. It was too disturbing, too horrifying to believe. The ambassador asked him flat out, was he really urging the Soviet Union to start a nuclear war? Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the lives of three of the 20th century's most influential and controversial Marxist-Leninist dictators, Vladimir Lenin, Fidel Castro, and Ho Chi Minh. Today, we'll continue our look at Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. Last week, we explored how Castro rose from obscure origins to lead a successful revolution against the oppressive regime of Fulgencio Batista, and how, after obtaining power, Castro stopped an invasion organized by the CIA at the Bay of Pigs. This week, we'll explore Castro's contentious relationships with the Soviet Union and the United States, including his role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. We'll also explore his falling out with fellow revolutionary Che Guevara and his struggle to guide Cuba in a post-Cold War world. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. After seizing power in 1959, Fidel Castro immediately ran up against the United States. When it looked like Castro was going to side with the Soviet Union, the Americans attempted to invade and overthrow him in 1961. Over a thousand Cuban exiles, trained and equipped by the CIA, had landed at the Bay of Pigs and were immediately repelled. Even though the Caribbean caudillo managed to throw back the invasion, tensions with the U.S. would define much of Castro's reign, as well as how he ruled at home. After the Bay of Pigs, Castro had a siege mentality. His beloved revolution, his country, and his life were under threat. In order to keep himself in power, he had to rely on his most trusted allies, his younger brother Raul and his friend Ernesto Che Guevara. Raul and Che believed they could save Cuba by turning it into a Marxist-Leninist state. 
Under their influence, Castro began to put hardline communists into top government positions. Speaking at a mass rally on May 1, 1961, weeks after the Bay of Pigs, Castro officially announced that Cuba was a socialist state. He also openly reneged on his promise to hold free elections, saying that the old Cuban constitution was too outdated and that the revolution has no time to waste on such foolishness. Until now, Castro's personal ideology was expressed in his so-called 26th of July movement, named after his ill-fated attack on the Moncada barracks. Though this political party had socialist elements, it was primarily nationalist and anti-imperialist, modeled after his hero, José Martí. But in the wake of the U.S.'s failed invasion, that all changed. Castro announced that Cuba's communist parties would be combined with the 26th of July movement. In time, the new party would be called the Communist Party of Cuba, or PCC. Cuba would be a one-party state. As Castro openly embraced communism, he turned against many of his moderate allies from the revolution. Those who had suffered alongside Castro in the mountains and jungles were replaced by communists. Ironic, since most communists had opposed Castro right up until the moment of victory. Before long, any group without communist bona fides became targets for persecution. Artists and intellectuals, Castro's earliest supporters, were purged from the government. Dissidents were arrested, imprisoned, and even put in labor internment camps, as were Catholic and Protestant clergymen, gay people, and sex workers. While Castro was clamping down on imagined internal enemies, he searched for external allies. Cuba was on the doorstep of a very hostile United States. It made sense to kowtow to the only other superpower in the world, the Soviet Union. Castro did everything he could to court Moscow. In December 1961, he made a lengthy television and radio address in which he proclaimed, I am a Marxist-Leninist, and I shall be a Marxist-Leninist until the day I die. After proclaiming himself a Marxist-Leninist, the communists in Cuba had to do a bit of retconning. The party insisted that Castro had always been a true communist. He had just been lying because Cubans weren't yet ideologically mature enough for the truth. That being said, it's hard not to suspect that Castro had other motivations. While the Soviet Union was happy to take Cuba under its wing, the two countries were never entirely comfortable with one another. In the words of journalist Volker Skirka, it was a forced marriage. Castro only snuggled up to the Soviets because he was afraid of the U.S. And he was right to be paranoid. Washington may have blundered the Bay of Pigs invasion, but they weren't ready to give up their attempts to dethrone Castro. In November 1961, President Kennedy approved Operation Mongoose. 400 CIA agents were given $50 million per year, worth about $440 million today, to topple Castro by any means necessary. Journalist Volker Skirka called it the largest covert operation against another nation ever undertaken by the CIA. 
Of course, this being the Cold War, the Soviets immediately suspected that the capitalists were up to no good. So in April 1962, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev asked his defense minister about stationing nuclear missiles in Cuba. The Soviets' motivation wasn't to protect a fellow communist brother, at least not primarily. Rather, it was a response to the Americans placing nuclear missiles in Turkey and Italy, missiles aimed squarely at the Soviets. According to Khrushchev, it was high time America learned what it feels like to have her own land and her own people threatened. In May, a Soviet delegation traveled to Havana and asked Castro if he wouldn't mind having his small island nation crammed with world-destroying nuclear weapons. Castro himself later said that he didn't like the idea of the Soviet missiles because they would ruin the image of the revolution in Latin America. However, he told the Soviets that if the missiles would strengthen world communism and protect the Cuban revolution, then they could go ahead. In July, the Soviets began covertly shipping men and material to Cuba, hoping to sneak them in without the U.S. noticing. The Soviets planned on building 40 mobile launching pads, along with stationing just over 40,000 Russians on the island. In addition to the missiles, the Soviets planned to build a naval base so that submarines could prowl the Gulf of Mexico. Despite the Kremlin's reassurances, Castro feared that once the U.S. inevitably found out about the missiles, they would attempt another invasion. And he was afraid that by keeping the whole thing secret, it would give Kennedy the moral high ground when the truth came out. It turns out, he was right. About a few months into the operation, the U.S. became suspicious. The U.S. had flown U-2 spy planes over Cuba, and the images of missiles they collected gave the Americans concern. Finally, on October 13, 1962, just before midnight, a spy plane took off for Cuba and confirmed that a nuclear weapons base was under construction. When the photographs were given to Kennedy on the 16th, he met with an inner circle of advisors known as the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or XCOM. Between XCOM and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Kennedy weighed his options. The Joint Chiefs advocated for an immediate military strike. Meanwhile, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara pushed for a complete blockade of the island by the U.S. Navy. After five days of debate, Kennedy approved the blockade. In his view, a full military strike was just too dangerous. At the very least, an attack on Cuba would encourage Khrushchev to seize West Berlin. As Kennedy put it, the Soviets can't permit us to take out their missiles, kill a lot of Russians, and then do nothing. Taking the moral high ground as Castro predicted, Kennedy went on television and informed the world that nuclear missile launch sites had been secretly constructed in Cuba. He announced the naval blockade and warned that if a missile was launched from Cuba, the United States would retaliate against the Soviet Union with its own nuclear arsenal. According to journalist Volker Skirka, tension began to mount all around the world. People grew extremely worried and spent their time sitting in front of radios or televisions or emptying supermarket shelves to lay up reserves. Governments made provisions for evacuation and other emergency measures. Millions of dead were predicted in the event of a nuclear war. 
After the blockade went into effect, Soviet transport ships reached the line of American warships. Kennedy and his advisors held their breath, waiting to see what the Soviets would do. If they attempted to run the blockade, the Americans would have to open fire. The Soviets would then be forced to retaliate. Escalating the standoff to nuclear war seemed not just possible, but likely. As both sides stared each other down, the Soviets blinked and their ships were rerouted. Washington and the world breathed a sigh of relief. But the crisis wasn't over yet. Castro, for one, was anything but relieved. He feared Yankee troops would land on Cuban soil at any moment, especially since the Soviets still continued working on the launch pads. Willing to do anything to save the revolution and keep his power, he decided it was time for Cuba to respond. Even if it meant starting a nuclear war. Coming up, Castro urges the Soviets to take a drastic step Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In October 1962, the world was on the brink of nuclear war. 36-year-old Cuban dictator Fidel Castro had agreed to let the Soviet Union station nuclear missiles on his island. In response, President John F. Kennedy instituted a total blockade of Cuba. And while the blockade managed to scare off some Soviet ships, it didn't stop construction on the launch pads. Kennedy insisted that the blockade would continue until the Soviets had removed the missiles from Cuba. Instead, the Soviets worked overtime to finish construction. With such defiance, Castro expected airstrikes and an American invasion within days. And he knew that the U.S. wouldn't fail this time like they did during the Bay of Pigs. Something needed to be done. On October 26th, a few days after the Soviet ships turned back from the blockade, a deeply agitated Castro had the Soviet ambassador yanked out of bed. The ambassador was forced to write a letter to Nikita Khrushchev in which Castro appeared to advocate that the Soviet Union start a nuclear war. After sending his ominous letter to Khrushchev, Castro remained deeply unnerved, waiting on pins and needles for the U.S. invasion. He ordered his troops to fire without warning on any American plane flying over Cuba. At the same time, landmines were placed around Guantanamo Bay, where the U.S. had a naval base. Thankfully for the entire planet, Khrushchev, who recognized that the situation had gone too far, decided to back down. Over the next few days, Kennedy and Khrushchev hammered out a peaceful solution. But Castro was still itching for a fight. On October 27th, the Cuban military shot down an American spy plane as it flew over the island. The American military urged Kennedy to retaliate, but he ignored them. 
Khrushchev, meanwhile, told Castro to stop shooting at American planes. Castro begrudgingly restrained himself. Finally, on October 28th, Washington and Moscow announced their deal. The Soviets would remove the nuclear missiles from Cuba under UN supervision, while the US would end the blockade and promise never to invade Cuba. Secretly, Kennedy also agreed to remove the American nuclear missiles from Turkey and Italy. Castro was furious. Not only had the Soviets locked him out of the discussions, but he had to hear about it on the radio. Unsatisfied, Castro demanded that the deal be altered to include various concessions to Cuba, including an end to the economic embargo and the return of Guantanamo Bay. Kennedy and Khrushchev ignored him. In Cuba, Castro was the great revolutionary hero and leader. But on the world stage, he was a mere pawn in the game being played between the Americans and the Russians. In the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, relationships changed. Castro was incensed at Khrushchev for sidelining him. Khrushchev was annoyed with Castro for acting unreasonably during the crisis. For decades, until the Soviet Union's collapse, the relationship between the two countries constantly ebbed and flowed. And one of the next major obstacles in the relationship was, surprisingly, Che Guevara. Castro and Che had formed a deep bond during their guerrilla war against Fulgencio Batista. Most dictators probably would have seen Che's worldwide popularity, charisma, and personal achievements as a threat. But this wasn't the case with Castro. Castro himself said that Che was more ideologically developed than he was. Castro listened attentively as Che explained Marxist-Leninist thought, even as he developed his own theories, which would later be known as Fokismo or Foco theory. According to Skierka, by the early 60s, Che had grown into the role of ideological brains of the revolution and exerted even greater influence over the commander-in-chief. As director of the Central Bank of Cuba and the Minister of the Industry, Che was the driving force behind an attempt to transform the nation's economy. He, along with Castro, hoped to transition Cuba from sugar exportation to something more modern and industrial. Unfortunately, the mostly rural Cuba lacked the infrastructure they needed to industrialize. Like so many communist dictatorships before and since, the government's goals were based on wishful thinking rather than pragmatism. There were a number of factors Che failed to account for. For one, most of the Cuban workforce did not have the necessary training. One doesn't go from sugarcane worker to mechanical engineer overnight. At the same time, the machines and equipment provided by the Soviet Union were of an inferior quality compared to what Cuba had used when the U.S. capitalists controlled industries. While attempting to modernize, the Cuban government quickly blew through the little hard cash it had, partially due to Batista's pilfering of the treasury before fleeing. As a result, inflation ramped up and Castro had to put much more of the country on rations. Everything from rice and beans to soap and toothpaste had to be rationed. By 1963, the economy was at an all-time low while agricultural output plummeted. And as profits disappeared, the government was then forced to pay people to keep working. 
This aligned with the Soviet way of doing things, which Che saw as a betrayal of true Marxism. And he wasn't afraid to say as much. In 1964, Che admitted that he'd been wrong, that attempting to suddenly divorce Cuba from sugar production had been a blunder. His attempt to industrialize was abandoned in favor of a new scheme to double down on sugar production, which would have serious consequences in the years to come. For now, the stink of failure lingered on Che. According to Skierka, economic realities, the collapse of his utopian hopes, and ideological differences with Moscow gradually worked behind the scenes to deprive Guevara of power. While Che's economic policies failed miserably, he could never bring himself to consider that the Soviet system, let alone the American one, was superior. In February 1965, while at a seminar in Algiers, Che delivered a speech in which he condemned the Soviet Union as exploitative and imperialistic. He said the Soviets had abandoned true Marxist-Leninist ideals. Castro wasn't pleased at Che's remarks. When Che returned to Cuba, he and Fidel and Raul Castro had a knockdown, dragout confrontation behind closed doors that was said to have lasted 40 hours. The three of them never spoke about what was said, but rumor had it that the Soviets had reprimanded Castro for Che's speech. Castro was furious that Che had embarrassed him and undermined Cuba's alliance with the Soviets. Che, meanwhile, was annoyed with Castro, feeling unappreciated. The rebuke felt like a betrayal. Che stubbornly refused to apologize to the Soviets and eventually stormed out of the room. Ultimately, Che left Cuba to participate in a revolution in the Congo. But while he was there, Castro wrote to him, urging him to return to Cuba. As it turned out, Castro just couldn't stay mad at his comrade. In July 1966, Che finally returned to Cuba after his adventure in the Congo failed. He was said to have had a mental and physical breakdown and checked himself into a sanatorium. Once Che's health improved, he insisted on traveling to Bolivia in the hopes of inspiring a revolution there. Castro urged him not to go, but to no avail. In the fall of 1966, Che left Cuba and Castro never saw his friend again. On October 8, 1967, Bolivian special forces captured Che. The next day, on the orders of Bolivian President René Barrientos, Che was executed. Che's hands were cut off and preserved in formaldehyde in order to get fingerprint verification and prove that they had really killed the Argentine revolutionary. The current whereabouts of Che's hands are unknown, but rumor has it that they were delivered to Cuba and are hidden from public sight in a Havana museum. The death of Che Guevara, the co-leader of the Cuban Revolution, hit Fidel Castro hard. He declared three days of national mourning and delivered a lengthy eulogy in which he described Che as an artist of revolutionary warfare. While mourning the death of his friend, Castro seemingly decided to take his heartbreak out on Moscow. Standing up to the United States wasn't enough for the Caudillo. Now, he wanted to challenge another global superpower. Coming up, 
Castro faces his greatest challenge yet. Now back to the story. In October 1967, Che Guevara was captured and executed in Bolivia. The death of his brother-in-arms was a major blow for Fidel Castro. Che, in many ways, had been the heart of the revolution. Now, Castro would have to go it alone. And for some inexplicable reason, he decided to take his anger out on Moscow. Since Che had been critical of the Soviet Union, Castro decided to carry the torch. In 1968, Castro criticized the Kremlin's market reforms, calling them a betrayal of Marxism, and praised Che as a true revolutionary who had died gloriously. Unfortunately for Castro, the Soviets had the upper hand. Not only did they refuse requests to raise oil imports to Cuba, a move that seriously threatened the island's economy, but they also decided to show what happened when you challenged them. In the spring of 1968, the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic attempted to liberalize and institute reforms. This became known as the Prague Spring. Since Czechoslovakia was a Soviet satellite state, this was considered an attack on socialism. So Moscow responded by sending in troops and crushing the reforms with military force. Upon seeing the Red Army flex its muscles, Castro suddenly changed his tune and announced that the Soviets had been correct to invade Czechoslovakia. He openly praised the Soviet Union once again, and eventually the Soviets responded by improving trade with Cuba. All was publicly forgiven. Even with Soviet relations improving, Castro still struggled to get the Cuban economy back on track. After abandoning plans for industrialization, Castro's regime doubled down on sugar production, promising to produce 10 million tons of sugar in 1970 alone. In the lead-up to the 1970 harvest, virtually the whole nation was mobilized to meet the goal. Mothers, children, students, and white-collar workers were all forced to volunteer for the harvest. Castro himself put in four hours a day of agricultural work. Castro said that being short even one pound of the 10 million goal would be considered a failure. In fact, in the end, Cuba fell short by 1.5 million tons. Worse, Cuba's economy actually dropped by between 20 and 40 percent. In the aftermath of the agricultural failure, Castro admitted that the responsibility for the defeat lay on his and his minister's shoulders. In order to improve the economic situation, he announced the introduction of limited market-like reforms. He also decided that the entire Cuban government needed to be restructured. The intent was to slightly decentralize decision-making so that not every resolution had to flow directly from Castro. In essence, this was a signal that Cuba was adapting a Soviet model where ministries could do their job without the direct supervision of a supreme autocrat. But in no way was power deducted from Castro. Instead, Castro officially made himself head of state and head of the party, in addition to his old position as commander-in-chief. The fact that Castro wasn't challenged after the failure of the 10 million tons promise was a sign of his high popularity in Cuba. Despite the many problems he had caused, 
Castro had still uplifted hundreds of thousands of Cubans, fought off the U.S., and instilled his country with a sense of national pride. At the same time, Castro had help from both the Soviets and the Americans. By the mid-70s, half of all Soviet aid went to Cuba. Meanwhile, in 1975, President Gerald Ford, hoping to improve relations with Cuba, eased the U.S.'s economic sanctions. With the economic and political situation at home stable, if not ideal, Castro increased his efforts to become a player on the world stage. He wanted Cuba to have prestige and influence in the Third World, the countries unaligned with either the United States or the Soviet Union. Thus, the Cuban military became deeply involved in military conflicts in foreign countries like Angola. In addition to soldiers, Cuba sent large numbers of doctors and teachers to underdeveloped nations. He enjoyed the acclaim these actions brought him and hoped to find new allies for a power bloc to oppose the U.S. By the end of the 1970s, all of Castro's international efforts set Cuba on course for being the most influential nation throughout the Third World. Unfortunately for Castro, he never achieved that goal. At the end of 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and Castro took their side in the conflict. By siding with the Soviets over the Afghans, Castro's reputation among developing nations fell. Meanwhile, Cuba's relationship with the Soviet Union went through an even more drastic change during the 1980s. In 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev became the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Recognizing that the Eastern Bloc had fallen behind the West, he initiated a series of reforms to revitalize the nation. The first, Glasnost, was a policy of openly and frankly discussing economic and political realities. The second, Perestroika, was an attempt to introduce market-like reforms into the economy. Castro was apprehensive of Glasnost and Perestroika. He suspected that they would destroy the system they intended to save by exposing it to capitalist deprivations. Instead, Castro initiated his own policy of Rectificación. Rather than a radical attempt at something new, Rectificación was a return to the past. Market-like reforms which had been introduced in the 70s were rolled back in favor of centralized planning and control. Castro once again consolidated decision-making under his direct supervision. Castro's suspicions about Glasnost and Perestroika proved accurate. Thanks in large part to these reforms, the Soviet Union began to collapse around 1989 and was completely gone by 1991. The disintegration of Cuba's oldest and most important ally was nearly catastrophic. The Cuban economy was closely tied to the Soviet Union. The country lost around 80% of its imports and its GDP reportedly fell around 34%. But surprisingly, Cuba didn't collapse. According to Skierka, it borders on a miracle that despite all the prophecies, the crisis did not produce social unrest in Cuba. This was partly due to the iron grip of the security apparatus. Another reason was probably the widespread feeling of resignation. 
To keep Cuba afloat, in 1991, Castro enacted the Periodo Especial, or Special Period. Rationing was intensified, so that Cubans frequently had to go without essentials like cooking oil, vegetables, soap, and toilet paper. Unemployment remained high, and even those who were employed often couldn't come to work because they had to stand for hours waiting in line for basic commodities. Without gas for tractors, farmers had to return to using ox carts, which only hurt agricultural output further. As was the case in most communist countries facing major economic downturns, capitalist reforms were introduced. Some small businesses, such as family-owned restaurants, were allowed to open. Tourism and biotechnology exports expanded as well. While many Cubans were resigned to the situation, not everyone was willing to take it lying down. In August 1994, for perhaps the first time since the 1959 revolution, a large crowd of people gathered in Havana and chanted, We want freedom! And down with Fidel! After a scuffle with police, Castro himself addressed the crowd, convincing them to disperse. In the wake of the protests and economic troubles, thousands decided to flee. Using anything that could float, including rubber tires, Cuban refugees made for Florida. The crisis was such a strain on both countries that they had a rare moment of cooperation. The U.S. agreed to allow 20,000 Cubans to receive visas per year. But despite the exodus of Cubans to America, Castro's belt-tightening measures did manage to turn around by the late 90s. At the same time, Castro found new trading partners, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela and Vladimir Putin of Russia. Once again, when all the experts were predicting the collapse of Castro, he survived. Of course, his refusal to perish irritated Washington, as if Cuba's survival was an affront to American sensibilities. Despite working out a deal for Cuban refugees, the U.S.-Cuba relationship was far from cordial. Tensions came to a head in January of 1996 when planes belonging to a group of Cuban exiles flew over the island to drop anti-Castro leaflets. When another set of planes from this same group approached the island a month later, Havana shot down two of the planes without warning. Much of the Cuban exile community in Florida was indignant. And with Florida considered a battleground state in the upcoming election, President Bill Clinton responded by signing the Helms-Burton Act. The bill was primarily drafted by a Florida congressman who happened to be Castro's nephew. The Helms-Burton Act extended economic sanctions against countries that had dealings with Cuba, including Canada and Mexico. It was far more severe than any previous sanction against Cuba. In effect, it announced that the U.S. intended to reduce Cuba to the state of a protectorate once more. Experts on both sides of the aisle called the act a blatant violation of international law. Even many who opposed Castro saw it was a monumentally foolish law that did nothing to encourage democracy in Cuba or aid the Cuban people. The Helms-Burton law still remains in effect today, as does the embargo against Cuba. Common sense tells us that the U.S. embargo on Cuba has never been effective. Its intent was to weaken the Castro regime to the point of collapse. Yet, 
Even after 60-odd years, that has not happened. Instead, the embargo largely strengthened Castro's hold on power. Castro used it to place the blame for Cuba's economic woes onto America. The hatred for America actually helped bind the Cuban people together in support of Castro. However, while Castro continued to battle with America, his health steadily unraveled. The exact nature of his physical ailments has never been frankly discussed by the Cuban government, but whatever he suffered severely derailed his hold on power. In July of 2006, the 79-year-old Castro handed the reins over to his brother Raul in the wake of a difficult intestinal surgery. The move was probably only intended to be temporary, but after 19 months of being mostly confined to his bed, Castro formally put his brother in charge in February 2008. In the years that followed, Castro was seen in public less frequently, only emerging from his seclusion to take verbal jabs at the U.S. Finally, after eight years of living in retirement, Fidel Castro died on November 25, 2016. One of the longest reigning leaders of the 20th century was no more. Cuba watchers predicted that without the old Cadillo, Cuba would immediately collapse or change. Though Raul Castro stepped down in 2008, Cuba still remains a one-party state. Fidel Castro's legacy remains one of the most divisive and complicated of any 20th century leader. In the words of journalist Anthony de Palma, it has been a mixed record of social progress and abject poverty of racial equality and political persecution, of medical advances and a degree of misery comparable to the conditions that existed in Cuba when he entered Havana as a victorious guerrilla commander in 1959. The Cuba Castro left behind is as full of contradictions as the leader himself. Some of his policies were highly successful. Not only is the quality of medical care in Cuba extraordinary, but it's available to all Cubans. There's free quality education and a high literacy rate. But these successes have come at a grave cost. The Cuban government restricts access to the internet and foreign media. The state police are ubiquitous. Neighbors are encouraged to spy on each other. Political dissidents and those deemed to be counter-revolutionary can find themselves arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. Up until the very end, Fidel Castro seemed to be convinced of the righteousness of his actions. As a young man on trial before the Batista regime, he famously proclaimed, History will absolve me. It takes conviction and incredible self-confidence to survive as long as Castro did. Previous Cuban caudillos were overthrown. Many of Castro's communist comrades collapsed in the early 90s. American presidents came and went. And yet, somehow against all odds, Fidel Castro survived. It remains to be seen whether the Cuba he built will survive as well. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Among the many sources we used, 
we found Fidel Castro, a biography by Volker Skirka, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Joe Guerra. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 